from the inside speaking out of the cooler money, speak out, speak truth segment. It's unique reporting and perspectives from those literally and presently on the inside or who have been on the inside of an issue, place, industry, cultural phenomenon, or movement, among other things, from the prison industrial complex and juvenile justice reform to the Black Lives Matter movement and the increase in activity of white supremacist hate groups to corporate and governmental corruption and more, whether through lived experience or witnessing firsthand. This is Cooler Money, Speak Out, Speak Truth, or From the Inside Out episode. And I'm your host, Mustafa Ojala, and also the speaker for this episode entitled Apartheid America. We've heard of Apartheid South Africa. We're going to have a little discussion here about Apartheid America. I recently watched a, a documentary on Fannie Lou Hammer, you know, one of my Mississippi natives. That's where I'm originally from. And she spoke, and the documentary is called Stand Up. And she spoke about how when she was 12 years, 10 to 12 years old, how she wanted to be white. You know, they had the better food, nice clothes, didn't have to work. And she also spoke about how she was not allowed to leave the plantation. And we're talking about the 60s. But the plantations were being ran similar to apartheid South Africa. And that's what we're dealing with today in America in terms of the restrictions that are placed on people of color, primarily people of African descent. And I say African as opposed to black, but either one, whatever suits you, African-American, black, we're still people of Africa. Uh, and so she spoke about how when she got ready to leave in order to register to vote, just leaving the plantation as a result of that, her house or the shack rather was shot up, right? She left her restricted perimeter and she was beaten and left with permanent injuries. And she gave that, that memorable speech, 1964 Democratic National Convention in Atlantic City, where she spoke about those injuries. And then you have, uh, if you ever read the book by Nathan McCall, it's called Make Me Want to Holler. Makes me want to holler. And he spoke about an incident. He was at a beach somewhere in Virginia. That's where he's originally from. That's primarily where the book is, uh, is, uh, speaking about the Virginia area. And how he met this little young white girl at the beach. And they had their little moment, you know, playing and whatnot. And when he got ready to leave, cause they were, there, they were only there for a brief moment, cause they was traveling other places, uh, she made a statement that she wished he was white. Right? So she, so even she knew at that early age that it was a privilege and to be a person of color that was restrictions placed upon them. And I'm going to talk a little bit about my own personal experience in that way. And we're going to talk about some more specifics in terms of apartheid America, but this is just to give you some indication of the depth of its impact on our people, uh, on personal lives, uh, on livelihoods and entire community. And my own personal circumstances, I'm originally from Mississippi, right? Uh, I come up small town Mississippi outside of Tupelo, Oklahoma, Mississippi. And I remember some specific incidents which kind of shaped me and my perspective of authority, of, uh, law enforcement, of, uh, you know, anything that had any type of control or influence over my life outside of my own little enclave of safety, which was amongst my own African people at the time. And I remember one incident in particular, and I'll speak on that in a minute, but before I even get into that, I remember at an early age, I think the third or fourth grade, there was a citywide boycott, right? Of all white establishments, uh, uh, stores, even the school system, because it was ran by whites, um, uh, businesses, uh, you know, any type of events, which many of them we weren't allowed to attend. I mean, at least not 
without hostility anyway. So I know some friends that never went back to school after that boycott, but eventually we were made to go back to school. Uh, I remember the racist, you know, responses I got from teachers, even the principal. I remember one time he yanked me up by my collar for just stepping outside the line. And you got white kids doing the same thing, but this is the type of, you know, terror and intimidation that went on in Mississippi and not just Mississippi because it goes on in northern schools too with medical, metal detectors, you know, in the schools and, you know, stops and frisk and, you know, different things like that that gives the child the impression that he's some type of criminal. You know what I mean? That he's committing some type of wrong just by existing. So those two incidents I just, incident, uh, incidents I just, I just recall are some of the things that shaped me. But I also remember seeing the Ku Klux Klan. And we're not talking about the Northern Ku Klux Klan that just do parades and marches. Don't get me wrong. Not all of them just do that. But we're talking about the Klan that will actually kill you in Mississippi. And I remember a specific encounter where they were having a, a campaign in the little downtown area. I was with my father, my brother at the time. And we almost ran into the march or the gathering. And my father had to hit a quick right, you know what I'm saying, to avoid it. I had a cousin got killed in the jail down in Mississippi. Uh, nobody ever held accountable for it. So these type of things shaped me. And it was a particular incident. You know, I was came raised up in a Baptist church, uh, you know, Sunday school and all of that. The images of Jesus as this great white man that's going to come save the planet. Uh, you know, God, you know what I'm saying? Images of him being a white man. And so I had this image of, you know, Jesus is blonde haired, blue eyed white guy, you know, feeding all the people with just one loaf of bread and fish and whatnot. And so in Mississippi during the summertime in particular, uh, you would have these fruit trucks and vegetable trucks come through the neighborhood. And it was this fruit truck and vegetable truck that came through the neighborhood, white guy, you know, selling fruits and vegetables, melons, uh, you know, uh, uh, cucumbers, uh, you know, tomatoes, strawberries, you name it. And so he looked like that image to me. So I walked up to the truck. I could have been no more than, I don't know, seven, eight years old, probably. And I'm thinking, because that's what it appeared from the distance, that he was giving this food away. So I walked up to the truck to get this food. You know, I wanted fruit and whatever he was handing out just like everybody else. It looked like Jesus feeding the neighborhood. And I don't remember the exact words he, he said to me, but they was racist. They were hostile. They were angry and basically told me, you know, get your black tail back home unless you got money. It was something to that effect. He might have used the N word. I can't even remember, but I, it was, it was, it was traumatizing and it was hurtful. And I was stunned. I was shocked. I was, I was traumatized. Because in my mind, this was the image that was taught to me in Sunday school. So I left, dejected, went home. I do remember telling my parents about it. Uh, I don't remember what happened after that, but that particular incident really stuck to me. And I soon began to develop the understanding that whites meant us no good. And because in Mississippi, in that particular area, they were in all the positions of authority from the school teachers and principals to law enforcement, the business owners, you named it, the bank owners. Uh, so I began to associate authority with racism. And if you don't like me, I don't like you. And I'm not making an excuse because I'm incarcerated right now. We'll speak about that in some of the other episodes which I have spoken about to some, to some extent. But that was the beginning of me 
engage in the criminal justice system in the wrong way. Because I soon developed the understanding, well, I developed the understanding then that me, us, and them did not see eye to eye. They were hostile and enemies to me, so I was going to be hostile and enemies to them. And anything that they possessed to own or anything they did or any type of authority they had, I had no respect for. And that wasn't a far leap from becoming a full-fledged criminal. If they had something, I wanted to take it. I had a right to take it because what they had taken from our people and what they were still taking and the way they treated and disrespected us. So that's, that's where it began. And once I got on that road of criminality, and I'm not making an excuse for the crimes I've committed, I'm incarcerated right now for armed robbery, possessing a weapon, which really was still one incident, the armed robbery itself, a drug-possessing case. But that is, that's where it began. So the impact of racism on the people and on the community, it can't be understated. So now we're going to talk about apartheid America. In particular, I'm going to talk about the area, uh, the Milwaukee metropolitan area, in Milwaukee in particular, because there's a class action lawsuit that was settled. The class action lawsuit was first filed in 2017, February. And it's Charles Collins versus City of Milwaukee, Milwaukee Fire and Police Commission, and Edward Flynn, which was the chief of police at the time. The case was settled in 2018, uh, July. So that's, what, three years ago. And just like Brown versus the Board of Education settled in 1954, it really meant nothing. Unless the people is going to, unless the people going to enforce the law. How do you enforce the law against the law? So that's why you have calls out there now about defunding the police and, and, and the, and the dialogue about a whole new way of policing. Right now it's just a dialogue and it's a push, but something has to be done because the law is not going to enforce the law. I mean, that's just what's happening. The law didn't enforce the law in Brown versus the Board of Education. It took people. It took bloodshed. It took protesting. It took a lot more than that. You know, it took some divestment of certain businesses. But how do you divest the police department? You know, that's some of the, some of the discussion that's being had. But this particular lawsuit, we're talking about apartheid America, similar to as I started out in this conversation mentioning uh, Fannie Lou Hamer. Hamer. Uh, we still have those restrictions. We still have those restrictions. I mean, there's certain parts, and this isn't just the city of Milwaukee. I mean, you could go to the city of Chicago. You're talking about Schomburg or, or Bolingbrook. I mean, King famously marched through Cicero, which is not the same now, not the same Cicero today. But anyway, the Cicero at that time, and he was attacked just as or worse than in some of the marches of some of the people that marched through Mississippi and other southern states. You know, when we talk about Brentwood in L.A., it's certain parts of America. And in Milwaukee, you're talking about Mequon, Cudahy, certain parts of Brookfield, uh, Waukesha, uh, right outside Milwaukee, that you literally get stopped for being black. And in fact, even in the black neighborhoods, African neighborhoods, you know, but particularly in neighborhoods, in some of the neighborhoods I mentioned, uh, the suburbs. Uh, and so what you had is this... Uh, this uh, Milwaukee police chief, Edward Flynn, he came in, I think it was 2018. Correction, 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 2008. And he ushered in, you know, the stop and frisk, the broken windows, the saturation patrols, uh, policing policy. He directed Milwaukee uh, police department officers to increase the number of traffic and pedestrian stops, also known as field interviews, quote-unquote, field contacts, in particularly neighborhoods that are economically depressed or perceived as suffering from social disorder. And to quote him, 
because he was questioned about it and the fact that large numbers of those stops were of law-abiding citizens. And his statement, quote-unquote, is yes, of course we're going to stop lots of innocent people. And you take, just let's look at the numbers for a minute. The traffic and pedestrian stops nearly tripled from 2007 to 2015. Mind you, he took office in 2008. In 2007, there were 66,657 stops. In 2015, there were 196,434. And the city's population was only roughly 600,000 people. So we're talking about a third, right, of the city's population being stopped or at least, because many people stopped more than once, uh, the pop- a third, roughly, of the number of the population were stopped. And so, and if you look in particular, at the black community, the African community. In 2010 alone, 72% of those stops were of uh, people of color, primarily black people of the third, fifth, and seventh district, but also Latino people. Yet, African people, black people of the city only made up 34% of the population. Yet, we're talking about 72% of the stops. And I want to highlight a few of those in particular, even, and even though there are some more egregious, because in some cases, that actually strip searches, body cavity searches. There's been lawsuits won on this. In 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 rare cases, some officers we even charge when we talk about the body uh the body cavity searches, where you you have an officer the officer swarm the community, right? On bicycles, on foot patrol, on motorcycles, uh vans, paddy wagons, uh station wagon type uh police vehicles, patrol cars, and even RVs. So they actually converted an RV into like a mobile police station where they would detain people. And in either one of those forms of transport, you have the police officers accosting the community, accosting the people in the community, I mean, entire neighborhoods. You know, where are you going? Where are you from? Where did you live? Let me see your ID. Pat searching, and like I said, in some cases, strip searching in public. Body cavity searching in public, right? And so uh, those are the most egregious cases, but there's a few... I want to highlight and comment on here. There was one, a fifth grader. He was going to visit a friend of his. You know, they was going to play in his room. And the friend happened to be white. This particular fifth grader happened to be of African descent. So he made it to the house, knocked on the door, rung the doorbell, whichever one it was. And he didn't get an answer soon enough. So he was getting ready to leave the house. And as he was leaving, the patrol car approached him. Asked him where he was going, what he was doing there. You know, he told him he was there to visit a friend. Had him put his hands on the car. Took his cell phone because he was trying to call and let his friends know that, hey, you know, he was outside the house. He was pretty sure he was there, but he was leaving and trying to make a phone call at the same time. So the officer searched him, you know, had him put his hands on the car. And during that time, the father of his friend came out the house, which happened to be white. And he asked, you know, why are you searching him? He's a little kid. And the officer responded, you know, hey, I'm just trying to be cautious. Right? You know, he didn't belong there. I'm just trying to be cautious. And you have another incident where you have a group of young black, young, 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 young adults, uh, and some teenagers coming back from Summerfest, big event in Milwaukee, one of the biggest, uh, concert events in the, in the nation, in, in fact, in the world. So this is a big event, Summerfest concerts, and they're coming back, returning home, and they're literally pulling up in front of one of the friend's house. 
and the and the patrol cars come in the opposite direction. See them, the back windows, which was permitted at the time, were tinted, but the front windows, everything else is clear. Woo, you know, pull over. You know, make they make a legal U-turn in the street, approach the vehicle, four officers, uh, two, I think it was two squad cars. They ascend on the vehicle, guns drawn. The driver had already rolled out on his window. And nevertheless, they open the car door, come out, right? So they pull him out. It's four males and one female in the car. All the four males, they demanded that they hand over their IDs. Guns drawn. They tell them to open other vehicle, other, other doors to the vehicle. So they begin asking, why were we, why are we being pulled over? He's literally, the driver's literally sitting on the sidewalk in front of this house. And the first answer I think was, well, it looked like one of you were reaching down for something. Another one was, well, the person in the middle rear seat didn't have a seatbelt on, something that was not something something that was not even visible you know, from the angle point of when they passed the officers in the, in the street. And eventually they were let go. No citations, nothing happened. What happened to, you know, the seatbelt citation, uh, you know, uh, so they, they were let go. In this last incident, uh, this, this is a grandmother. Her name was Alicia Silvestri. She's returning home. Uh, she has a granddaughter in the back seat of the car, a four year old granddaughter. And, because of the neighborhood she was in, one of the south side streets in Milwaukee. And for those that don't know, Milwaukee is one of the most racially divided cities in the country. It has been ranked as the most racially divided city on more than one occasion, or definitely in the top five. So the north side of Milwaukee is, you know, the African side, the black side. The south side is the white side. And, of course, you know, definitely far east side of Milwaukee, which you're talking about downtown area. And that's changing a lot today, but still, that's predominantly the racial divide in Milwaukee. North side, black, south side, white, and of course, you know, a uh, significant number of Latinos on the white, on the south side as well, and some on the north side. So you have her on the south side at the time, and she get ready to leave, heading home, and emergency lights come on, police swarm, right? They pull her over. She has a granddaughter in the car. They ask her, where is she going? Why is she over there? Let me see your driver's license. She, she tell them that, hey, you know, I left my driver's license on the table in my purse. I forgot my purse. It's at home on the table. And they're so aggressive, and they're saying she sounds suspicious because they're so aggressive with her that they make her nervous so she couldn't even adequately state the, her date of birth. So they found that suspicious. Her granddaughter's in the back seat of the vehicle crying. So they tell her, look, you're going to get in the car. And we're going to follow you to your home to make sure that you live where you say you live and you're going to produce a driver's license. Do not get out of the car until we tell you. It was unbelievable. So she drive, she's driving home. Uh, she do as instructed. Once she arrives at the house, a police officer will get out the car first, get out their vehicles first, have her get out. They follow her without permission, without a search warrant, into her house. When she see the purse on the table, get ready to reach for it, the officer take it, go through a purse, dump out the contents, find the ID, confirm everything she said. And she's asking them, why are you treating me like this? And they said, well, you were in a high crime area. You know, the go-to, the go-to phrase, high crime area. And then we found this in your car and they put out some tinfoil, which they said had residue from heroin. She said she didn't know what that was or what the heroin was. 
and they left without any citation. Now, let them tell it. They found that in the car. And also, when she later filed a complaint, they said when she made, uh, she ran a stoplight on that particular corner. I think Homer Street and Kinnick, Kinnick Avenue or something of that nature. But at any rate, there's no stop sign there. I mean, there's no, uh, there's no stoplight there. So she couldn't have ran a stoplight. It wasn't, there's none there. She was never given a citation or anything of the nature. So she was also part of the class action lawsuit that was filed. And as the lawsuit developed, what was found out is that, as in many other cities, New York included, they actually had developed uh, a quota system. And so the officers were being instructed, instructed to make at least two, at least two stops a day. As a matter of fact, I want to get to some of those numbers, if you bear with me for a minute. So what was found out is that uh, there was a quota system, and the officers were being required to make at least two stops a day, and even a stop on their way to an assignment. So if you got like a priority three or four, which might be a little small dispute, or priority, priority one or two, which may be, uh, you know, uh, a shooting, a stabbing, you know, uh, a fight, you know, uh, a robbery that was committed. So they were being told if they don't have that two-stop-a-day quota, even on the way to assignment that's like three or four priority, that they were being uh, directed to make stops. Even if that stop could lead to the person that made the 911 call, the officer call, whatever, not being seen by the police for another 20 minutes, which can cause that priority three or four uh, call to escalate into a one or two, depending on the circumstance. And so there was another case. It was Hardy versus City of Milwaukee, in which the court, the Federal District Court, Eastern District of Wisconsin, upheld a jury's verdict, finding that the Milwaukee Police Department and its officers were engaged in unconstitutional, racially discriminatory uh, practices with their stop and frisk, uh, broken window, saturation patrol type police policing. And this is a quote unquote from the court. It is apparent that the MPD, Milwaukee Police Department, has opted to continue the sort of illegal stops that Mr. Hardy was subject to. MPD Chief Edward Flynn has made clear that one of his prerogatives is encouraging large amounts of pedestrian stops, regardless of the reasons. In criticizing Floyd versus City of New York, the Southern District, the Southern District of New York case, finding the New York Police Department stop and frisk tactics illegal. Chief Flynn stated, that's what worries us about what's happening in New York. It would be a shame if some people decided to put us back in our cars, just answering calls and ceding the streets to thugs. That's his statement. That's his rationale, right? And so uh, you have uh, further statements about him because one of the rationales they use is that the reason you have the, the discriminatory data showing up is because they're targeting neighborhoods that have high victimization data. So this is where a lot of victims of crimes live. And just so happened, in that same neighborhood, that's also where the offenders live. In other words, like in many other cities around the world, most people commit crimes against people of their own ethnic group. Whites commit crimes against white. Latinos commit crimes against Latinos. Africans, blacks commit crimes against Africans, blacks, primarily. But that didn't hold up because what it also saw in the data is that even in predominantly white neighborhoods, people of African descent 
were getting stopped at disproportionate, num at disproportionate numbers. And one set of data shows that in those neighborhoods that were not considered high crime areas, like District 1 and District 6, which have predominantly white populations, not designated high, as high crime areas, according to the MPD. So you have a 2011 statistic which shows that black people were stopped 12.6 times as often as white, as white drivers. Black drivers were stopped 12.6 times as often as white drivers. Hispanic drivers, Latino drivers were stopped four times as often as white drivers. And in District 1, that was District 6, black drivers were stopped nearly five times as often as white drivers. So it didn't hold up that the disparity in numbers were due to the place of the stop. Because it didn't matter if it was a white neighborhood or the side of town or a black neighborhood or the side of town. People of African descent were being targeted. You know, these have some real consequences. I mean, I started off giving you a little information about my own personal story and relating some of the other stories of others and showing you how this has a real and serious impact in people's lives and people's livelihoods. Uh, but it also has some deadly consequences. In 2011, you had Derek Williams. He was handcuffed in the back of a MPD police squad. He made pleas for help for medical attention. Uh, he was ignored. He died in the back of that squad car. Mine incident. In 2014, you have Dontre Hamilton. He was shot and killed unarmed, which started off initially as a pedestrian stop. He was found asleep on a park bench. He had already been contacted by other MPD officers and cleared. He was cool. He was all right. He wasn't bothering anybody. In a simple pedestrian stop, ended in him being killed, shot and killed. Then you have Sabil Smith, shot and killed as he fled, uh, on foot following a traffic stop. So these encounters have serious consequences, not just the consequence of incarceration, which that alone, you know, can disrupt the whole person's life. These stops, these uh this apartheid activity in America has real consequences. It, it not only disrupts lives, you know, people lose their jobs, uh you know, uh you lose your job, it can impact your family. It impacts your mental health, which impacts your physical health. And we know that the numbers are under are underrepresented because many of the MPD officers fail to document every stop. And don't get me wrong, this isn't just about the city of Milwaukee. Milwaukee is just indicative of what's happened around the country. And Milwaukee took its cues from New York. And even though these cases have been settled, this still goes on. Uh, brother of mine, Ahmad Ajala, 1st October 2017, he's coming out of a grocery store, Pride Food Store, 21st and Brown, Milwaukee. Uh, north side black neighborhood. He's exiting, exiting the store. Brief conversation. Items he's purchased in hand, receipt, bag, all that. Right away, accosted by the police, hands against the wall, search, give me your ID, ID you ran, and issued a citation for loitering or prowling. Prowling. Right? So the settlement happened in the class action lawsuit, you know, Charles Collins versus, uh, uh, city of Milwaukee, uh, MPD Fine Police Commission, uh, Chief Edward Flynn. That was 2018. But yet, still, in 2020, here's another incident with Ahmad. He's on the lakefront with his fiance, stopped to eat at Wings over Milwaukee, downtown Milwaukee, east side. They tell him that the order, you know, would take about 20 minutes, so they take a walk. No more than two blocks, they're coasted by police. Question about loitering. In view 
There's a Walgreens, right? Several white men there are panhandling and actually loitering outside of the Walgreens in view of where the police are questioning them. Nothing said to the white guys. And then they explained their reason. And they said, you know, he looked like a loitering drug dealer. He asked, why do I appear to you to be a loitering drug dealer? And they said, because the way he was dressed, he was dressed nice. Right. And then they also said, because his face was not a normal face that they see around there. So, you know, you don't belong in a downtown, you know, uh, right now, you know, that you had a Milwaukee, Milwaukee Bucks in the championship, the Deer District area. You're permitted now, you know, we had a, we got a championship game going on, but. Generally, you're not, you're not, you're not, you're not welcome there, right? Stay in your neighborhood, stay on the north side of Milwaukee, stay in the ghetto. And this is the same thing in any city. You even have a Bucks player. In 2018, he filed a lawsuit. The Bucks player was Sterling Brown. Minor parking violation. It escalated into him being taken down, paid, stepped on, and everything. The case was just settled last year in November. It was just settled, uh, not even a year ago. He settled a case of $750,000. The first offer was $400,000. He refused the officer. He refused the offer because the MPD did not want to accept, uh, did not want to admit wrongdoing. Even though they had settled another class action, as I mentioned in Charles Collins case, for these same practices that in the settlement, they agreed that they were going to discontinue. So here you have a Bucks player. It doesn't matter. You're stationed in life. And so even him, but I, I respect him for not taking that settlement without them acknowledging wrongdoing. So not even a year ago, November last year, they settled the case and it's still ongoing. So this is, this is apartheid America. And, you know, we can talk about what's happening in South Africa right now. You know, terrible situation. Again, in Soweto, you know, people being killed, uh, you know, we can talk about what's happening in many other places around the world. You want to highlight what happened in Haiti, the president getting assassinated. You know, terrible circumstance, uh, attempt to dis disrupt the democracy, even though if it's not on the level of what we call, you know, the beacon of freedom, America, or any other place, you know, Western society in, in general. We can talk about what's happening in Cuba. But we got to deal with. And the same people that are making those statements and comments and, 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 and public outcries got to deal with what's happening in apartheid America. This is apartheid America, what we're talking about here. This is cool money, speak out, speak truth. And this is not over. I mean, this, this issue has not been resolved. It's still ongoing in many cities, just like the city of Milwaukee. Lawsuits can be won, class actions can be settled, but we still have the same problem. I mean, we don't even need to count the days till we're talking about the next George Floyd. Again, a simple incident escalated into the death. And what we're talking about, not even an incident where there's been a crime reported. We're talking about people walking down the street, you know, going to a friend's house. You don't belong here is the message. Where are you going? Show me your ID. Show me proof that you have a right to exist in the same space. This is apartheid America. And in the next episodes and episodes to come, not this next episode in terms of uh, uh, from the inside out segment. But we're going to be talking about calls to action. You know, some calls are being made in terms of investment and things of that nature. And there's not necessarily one answer to the solution. But just civil action, protest, and dialogue is not enough. So expect more on this in call to action segments coming up. And do let me add, everything is according to the will of Allah, inshallah.
So we never want to say we're going to do anything in the future without adding inshallah. So uh, I'd like to add that. Alhamdulillah. All praise be to Allah for this podcast, for this episode. And this is Cooler Money. Speak out, speak truth.